Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020. Good. One, uh, Day left until spring break. We had uh, a couple games that we played last week. Our uh, girls teams at Geneva got to the final four, both in soccer and in basketball. Wow. Unfortunately, they they lost uh, both games, but uh, they were uh, really great um, seasons for both teams. The way that Texas works is um, for their private and parochial schools have different divisions. And we moved up to the second to highest division, which uh, – has somewhere between 200 and 450 people in, in the high school. And we're on the lower end of that. So the fact that uh, two of our girls teams made it to the final four uh, with really only 25 girls per, per grade level was, uh, was pretty, pretty remarkable. So yeah, great job. And uh, we'll move on now. We actually moved down to four a next year, even though our school is growing. I think it's just the nature of Texas right now. There are a lot of people moving here. Uh, a lot of people going to private and parochial schools, and uh, so we're we're excited for next year, but uh, really good, uh, really good end to the season. Um, how about Kings? Are you on spring break this this week as well, or uh, next week? So next week. yeah, we've got midterms this week, and then spring break next week. You know, a little different experience as uh, interim provost. So you know, as a student, uh, one year my dad and I drove down to Florida and spent the week at spring training games and practices, and just you know, great, great, great time. Um, as a professor, spring break was usually, you know, catch up on grading, maybe a few house projects and a day trip or two, you know, with the family. Um, for me this year, it's mostly get to work at home a couple extra days. So um, not a huge break, but <laughs> save, save a little bit on the commute uh, and a couple of those early mornings. So I'll be I'll be thankful for that. Um, and baseball season, well, is that coming in into gear here, or what, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, it's better than it was last week this time. Last week, the owners were saying the games were canceled, not to be made up. Now that, that seemed to be a negotiating ploy. And so now there's talk about, well, maybe we can make those games up, still get 162 games in. So we'll see. I mean, they last night they were facing another deadline, but they decided to keep going today. So Hopefully that means that they're close to a deal and they're going to be able to get the full season in. That would be great. You know, after <laughs> what I was looking like last week, if that's the final outcome, I'll take it. But there's other things I was reading this week where they were talking about, now oh, the owners would be happy to start in May and, and um, you know, they can miss 25 games before they start losing TV revenue, et cetera. So we'll see maybe another rant coming next week, or maybe it'll be a, a celebration of, of a success and, and optimism about a season to come. All right, well, let's uh, now turn to Aristotle. We're wrapping up book five today, Dave, with chapter 12. 
Yeah, so in chapter 12, he starts by saying that oligarchy and tyranny are of all governments of the shortest duration, so they're the hardest uh, to preserve. But the meat of this chapter is really this interplay between Aristotle and Plato slash Socrates on how regimes change. So this is really kind of the, the chapter as to what regime change looks like. So, of course, he's going to be uh, referencing the discussion of regime change in book seven and eight uh, of the Republic. Uh, there, uh, the simple formula for Socrates is that once you create the best city in speech and you have it ruled by philosopher kings, uh, it is uh, the best that can be imagined for mankind, albeit you can't keep it going because you can't maintain succession in that regime. You can't um, maintain uh, through birth that philosophers would give birth to philosophers. Uh, there's some discussion as to how you might uh, come up with a magical number to figure out how to arrange births, uh, but the thing falls apart. And, and as it falls apart, uh, another thing instead of wisdom is, is loved, uh, that being honor. The, the soldiers who are protecting the philosophers say, why do the philosophers get to rule? We should rule. Uh, the soldiers then, um, as uh, they have children, their children say, well, we should be making money rather than fighting battle. So you move once again uh, to a different regime. So from aristocracy or, or um, monarchy, and depending on how you think of that philosophic regime, to what is called timocracy, T-I-M-O-C-R-A-C-Y, which is the rule of honor. And then thirdly, to the rule of wealth in an oligarchy. Uh, and then the oligarchy falls apart in turn, uh, falls apart and becomes a democracy, uh, the rule of the free and, and uh, the equal. And then the last and final regime in this uh, succession of regimes is tyranny, uh, the rule of the tyrant. So the argument made by Plato through Socrates in the Republic is that there is a cyclical nature to regimes. So regimes start off with what is best and they end up with what is worse. Uh, all of the same regime types that Aristotle has taken up in his discussion in the politics are likewise taken up in the Republic. But as we can see from his assessment of regime change, Aristotle believes that uh, Socrates has many things wrong. The one thing, however, Matt, that he has right is the importance of education to a good regime. You know, will people within a community submit to education and thus become better? Uh, or will they oftentimes just turn away from education uh, and allow the more corrupt part of their nature uh, to rule them? So one point of agreement uh, between the two of them, and then as we'll see as we go through the questions and critique of Plato and Socrates by Aristotle, many differences of opinion. So what do you make um, of the beginning of this chapter, the last chapter of book five? Well, there's a few things that, that jump out at me. I mean, one is just this is with with uh, book two, the beginning of book two, uh, an interesting place for Aristotle to interplay with with his master, with with Plato, with Socrates. And, and we see the differences emerge here. And I think it's consistent with kind of the general account we get of Aristotle versus Plato, where, where Plato's account um, seems based upon on theory in a certain way. And Aristotle comes back with with history, with experience and says, yeah, but that's not how it actually plays out. Let me give you these examples. And we see a lot of different regimes and leaders of regimes referenced, especially in the first part of this chapter. The other thing that, that struck me as you were going through that was just thinking about how for Plato, it's the best regime that's probably the short, most short-lived. And, and for 
And for Aristotle, he's talking about how tyrannies and oligarchies are, are short-lived and the difficulty of preserving those. And so there's something maybe on both ends of this that run contrary to, to nature in a certain sense, right? The, the ideal regime is pushing against nature in one way where it's, it's challenging our flaws, it's challenging our fallenness, it's challenging our fallibility, and so it can't last. On the other extreme, tyranny and oligarchy are, are challenging nature in a different sense and, and pushing for an, an unnatural focus on the good of, of small groups uh, when the nature of politics ought to be to preserve the common good. So, so you see, I think in, in both ways, there's a, a difficulty whenever you try to orient your politics in ways that run contrary to the, the God-ordained order of things. And so something in between these extremes is actually the most natural place for human beings to settle into, given who we are in our, on the one hand, our desire for justice, and on the other hand, the, the corruption of our nature. And so these two kind of competing desires that, that challenge us to, to push toward better things while making the, the perfect impossible. It's excellent, Matt. I, I think you're, you're pointing that out and that difference between Plato and Aristotle also gets to, I think, the heart of the matter, which is what artifice, what art do we have as human beings uh, to better craft our existence so that we flourish, uh, given our nature? Yeah. A lot of people suggest that Plato's Republic uh, was written in an ironic tone. Uh, here he was trying to convince uh, some of the younger men in the conversation uh, not to go into a political existence, but to choose a philosophic existence instead. So if you can show that even the best political regime that you create is going to fall apart quickly, you're going to decide not to want to practice necessarily the art of politics, which was a draw for, for many a young man at that time, but instead perhaps pursue philosophy instead. So showing the limits of the art of politics in being able to move or turn things in the right direction. Whereas for Aristotle, there's a constant reference to how art might be employed to improve our nature, right? To get us to a better place, not to a perfect place, not to the ideal or the utopian city and state, but to the better, right? He doesn't, as I've said over and over again, make the perfect the enemy of the good, but he tries to employ art to make the better its friend. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great observation. It's 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 clear for Aristotle that politics is about working at the margins, right? Trying to incrementally improve things and, and look at okay, we have an oligarchy, how can we make it a little bit better? We have a democracy, how can we improve that a little bit? And, and so a lot of his critique of of Plato, I think, is just along the lines you're suggesting, where there's a danger of kind of expecting too much or or not being satisfied with those marginal improvements that can actually, in, in practical ways, improve the lives of your countrymen. And, and so having a, a view of politics that allows for reform, maybe as the essential work of the political leader. Yeah, so let's get into some of the particular um, criticisms, because I think they uh, build upon this, this foundation of art versus nature, uh, human nature, human fallenness, and, and so on. And they do so in a way, I think it's a, he makes a very, very convincing argument here in this chapter. So let's go into an, another uh, criticism that he makes that's really quite interesting. He's, you know, we, we tend to think, uh, when we think of change, that everything is moving uniformly in one direction. Uh, sometimes we do that to our detriment by believing that everything's just getting better, everything's progressing. Uh, and then secondly, or that everything's just falling apart, the sky is falling in. So we tend to have this black and white 
mentality with regard to change where it's either great or it's it's becoming more and more awful. But what Aristotle tells us is that with the timing of change, there may be some things within society that are getting better, while at the same time, there are things that are getting worse, right? So these things don't line up perfectly. Not everything is getting worse at the same time or getting better at the same time. So there could be some indicators, right, that say in economics, things are getting better for your regime, uh, but in terms of international relations, uh, they're not. Uh, in terms of governance, they're getting better, uh, but in terms of education, they're not. So you, you, you have to take a look at the regime in all of its complexity, and you have to try to chart you know, where these currents are. And sometimes good currents are pointing in one direction at the same time that bad currents are pointing in another direction. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point because you think about one of the, the polls that's just constantly being updated is the general perception of the direction of the country. Right? Are, are we moving in, in, in a good direction or a bad direction? And you know, if, if you go back and look at the recent data on that, other than usually there's some optimism at the time of a new presidency or something, but it's been pretty pessimistic for years. Right? You know, usually the data is we're moving in the wrong direction. So you kind of wonder, well, what is it that people are, are looking at there? Right? What, what metric are they using? Is it primarily their economic situation and circumstances? Is it in the, our present day, their perception of the pandemic and the trajectory of that or you know, we, we don't we don't know because the question is this kind of generic question. But I think there's there's a great point here for the the thoughtful statesman, the, the philosophic statement statesman to be able to to perceive those those competing currents and to be able to see perhaps beyond the immediate perspective of the of the common voter or common political leader to have a, a broader sense of, of where things are improving and where that improvement ought to be encouraged to continue in that same direction and where there are things that are moving in the wrong direction that, that need to be reformed. One of the dangers of having a misperception of these things is that you reach this point where you're just determined to say, well, either nothing can be done, right? Or this next election, everything is riding on it. This is the last chance to save the regime, to save the country, uh, or the other way where you just think, well, there's nothing that needs to be fixed. And we're, you know, we're, we're absolutely certain we're on the right side of history and plowing ahead. Right. And so you actually miss the moment and you miss the things that need to be done that a statesman can be engaged in, um, even while the general current might be positive or negative based upon the perceptions of, of, the, of the public at large. Yeah. And here's where I think, you know, one of the things that Plato says through Socrates and the Republic may, may help us. And that is that when we're talking about regime change, we're talking about human beings and communities thinking about the change of, of their overall community. But we also have to remember that these individuals are individual human beings, right? Who have been born, you have a middle stage to their life and, and are dying. So not only are we trying to manage the regime change of our community, but we're trying to manage the regime change of our own individual person. Uh, and we know, right, we figure it out at, at a certain time that we are mortal, right? That there's mortality that plays into uh, how we look at the world. And you know, I think this week, a lot of the uh, um, talk on shows is that well, Putin has cancer and that's why he's doing what he's doing there, right? That taking his individual perception of where he is in life and having kind of one large, last big, glorious moment uh, for, for Russia, whether or not this is, is true, um, we have to, and I think um, Plato does, does this well, we have to take into account how individual human emotions 
play into regime change. Individual human loves uh, play into regime change. And Aristotle does that to some degree, uh, but he's not going to get more into the psyche of, of individuals as, as, as much as Plato does. So let's, uh, let's move on here. Uh, you had already hinted at this, the direction of where things go. Uh, if, if we're studying Aristotle correctly, we see that over and over and over again, he is trying to teach oligarchs how to make their regime better or Democrats how to make their regime better. He even goes so far as to try to teach tyrants how to make their regime better. So he doesn't necessarily believe that we have to move from a good regime or, or better form of what a regime is to a worse form. Maybe improvement is possible. You know, Maybe we can go from being a C student to a B minus student. We might not become an A student, but that improvement uh, is there. So Aristotle's um, paradigm of regime change allows for things to move in both positive and negative directions, not simply in one direction. Yeah, I think just more broadly, there's just more variety in his account of things, right? There's, there's, you know, he looks at history and he says, well, this tyranny was replaced by another tyranny. And this one turned into an oligarchy. This one became a democracy. So there's a lot of various uh, contingent circumstances that you could investigate in those given communities that would explain that. But I mean, overall, I think the point that you're making, which is a, an important one for people engaged in politics, is there's hope, right? <laughs> there's there's a possibility of improvement, and you know one of the reasons that's the case, I think, in Aristotle, is that for him, politics is about managing these interests and groups that are always there. You, you always have the rich and the poor. The rich might be leading today, in which case you have an oligarchy, and, and tomorrow it's the poor or the many, in which case you have a democracy. But even when the rich are in charge, the poor are still there. Right? There's kind of a latent possibility of democracy in every oligarchy and, and vice versa. So because the one, the few, and the many are these naturally occurring groups that always exist in any given community, maybe to varying degrees and with varying degrees of authority at, at any given point in time, nevertheless, there's always the possibility of each regime transforming into any of the others uh, because those groups remain there. And in the right circumstances, you can move from a democracy to an oligarchy, to a monarchy, to a polity, et cetera. Yeah, he reads here a lot like Ecclesiastes, uh, albeit he wouldn't be as critical that that making these improvements amounts to vanity, right? Sometimes you can try to make improvements in, in a humble way, realizing that you're never going to make things perfect uh, in which you can do some good, right? So that all that happens under the sun isn't vanity, you know, in the same sense that Solomon would suggest that it is um, without knowledge of, of God and his wisdom, uh, holding uh, all things together. Uh, one other element I want to bring up here is this, it's very important uh, to the ancient mind, and it really there's a great distinction here between the ancient mind and the Judeo-Christian mind, and that is uh, the difference between kind of a linear sense of a philosophy of history that comes later, and that cyclical sense of history that was bound up um, in, in that ancient mind, the, the fact, this idea that things kind of move in circles, and that history constantly repeats itself over and over again. If you read Plato's Republic, um, you know, there's a, there's a suggestion there that uh, things move cyclically. In fact, I wrote my master's thesis on this and suggested that the whole Republic is, is based upon a geometric model of, of us moving around in a circle, around and around and around. But Aristotle is open here uh, to the notion that there's not necessarily a cyclical nature uh, to change. Uh, he says, you know, do all things end up 
uh, in tyranny, as, as Plato suggests. He doesn't tell us uh, what happens after tyranny. Would we go from tyranny to then a good regime? Well, tell us how you go from the worst regime to the best regime. So he, he pokes many holes in this notion that history uh, moves cyclically. And as you said before, he uses the history of particular regimes to show that that's just not the way that history has played out. History hasn't played out cyclically, as, as Plato suggests through Socrates uh, in the Republic. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Ecclesiastes, and of course, one of the great observations of, of Solomon there is that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah. So in a certain sense, <laughs> we, we are repeating uh, the same foibles and follies that others have in other circumstances, and yet the overall Christian message is, yeah, there, there is a linear movement here, right? Yeah. There's, there's a creation, there's a fall, there's a period of, of redemption, and then there's a consummation of return of Christ that's going to bring an end to this human history and establish a new heavens and a new earth and, and a, you know, an entirely new reality there. So while, while we are in this intermediate period, right, where we're, we're awaiting that final consummation, we see over and over again the, the same fallen human nature showing itself in varieties of circumstances, and, and there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, but we won't always live under the sun. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no sun uh, because, because God is, is the sun, right? Irradiating glory illuminates that new world. And so there's a, there's a movement of history toward that final consummation that, that really ought to give uh, Christians at all times hope, even in the worst of circumstances. Yeah, so I think, you know, to take into account both Plato and Aristotle in conjunction with what you just said, Plato and Aristotle, I think, try to temper human ambition, uh, perhaps in a, in a right way, but the only true tempering of human ambition, right, is to um, lend oneself over to the glory of God, right? It's not our human actions that make things uh, what they should be, uh, but it's our... Um, it's our fear uh, of the Lord and, and uh, growing wise in, in that. So uh, that said, uh, on to book six uh, for next week. Uh, three more books left in Aristotle's Politics. All right, we're going to conclude the show with the grade book. We've got coming early next week, the beginning of NFL free agency. Uh, yesterday, Tuesday, we're, we're taping on Wednesday as usual, two really big moves. Uh, Aaron Rodgers apparently is coming back to the Packers. There's some debate about his contract, whether he signed it or not. Uh, he says he hasn't. <laughs> but in any case, they're talking about four years, $200 million contract that would make him the highest paid player in the NFL and NFL history. Most of that money guaranteed. Uh, and then shortly after that, once that was settled and all the questions about whether Rodgers would stay in Green Bay or, or go somewhere else were settled, we had a blockbuster trade. Russell Wilson traded from the Seahawks to the Denver Broncos. Seahawks get uh, three players back, including uh, quarterback Drew Locke, uh, tight end Noah Fant, and five draft picks, two number ones, two number twos. Uh, so big, big blockbuster trade there, really resetting things for both those franchises. Uh, Dave, want to get your, your grades on those moves from the perspectives of the Packers, the Broncos, and the Seahawks. Well, I think for the Packers, I think re-signing – Rodgers, you know, was the most important thing that they could do to take advantage of the window that they're at right now to to win a Super Bowl. So if 
they had to guarantee $150 million, but it gets them another Super Bowl or chance at a Super Bowl. I think that that's a good thing. I'd, I'd say that that that's an A minus that, you know, that he, he stays there. Uh, he's somewhat happy. I mean, he loves, you know, he, he loves to make the news, so he's not going to go away in some of his criticisms. But I think that he's a great player, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, the greatest quarterback of all time or one of them. And uh, so I think that's a that's a great thing. I, I give them a high grade. The Russell Wilson trade, I was really interested because, I, I mean, I, I thought they got back some good draft picks, but I thought that the Seahawks and getting Drew Locke and Noah Fant's pretty good tight end and uh, defensive lineman Shelby Harris, they really just didn't get much back from the Broncos. I would have probably gone after a couple other players on the Broncos roster uh, if I was making this move. Uh, and, you know, I, you just wonder just how how badly did Russell Wilson want out of Seattle and what was he willing to do uh, in order um, to get out? And so we don't know any of that, but um, they seem to have some draft picks here. Uh, it's really hard to replace a, a franchise quarterback. I think Russell Wilson's proven to be one of those, you know, five to seven great quarterbacks in the league over the last decade. So will they be able to replace that? Or, you know, will they go into a three to four year funk where um, that's just going to be hard to do? Um, I like Pete Carroll. I'm sure they have a, a plan there. They've been a real good team for a long time. So, but this is this is shaking up the you know the uh, Parks family football yeah. line. I mean, you've got mom with the Seahawks and Russell Wilson, your dad with the Packers. And, I know. Yeah, I was texting with them last night about it, and I said, "Well, is you know dad celebrating and mom in mourning?" <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's it's hard to see this from the Seahawks standpoint as anything other than the beginnings of a of a major rebuild. Yeah. I mean, Drew Locke is not the answer at quarterback. And if you don't have the answer at quarterback and the best pick you're going to get is a number nine pick this year in a draft where there's probably not a franchise quarterback, then, you know, how many years is it before you're really settled at that, at that position again? I mean, Pete Carroll's 70 years old, although he, you know, he actually is about 50, but, but he's 70 years old. It's hard to believe, you know, he was the coach of the Patriots before Belichick, right? So he's been around a long time. Um, and so, you know, what, what's he thinking about this? Has he got five more years he wants to coach through a three and 14 season and a five and 12 and, you know, finally work your way back to the playoffs three years down the road. I don't, maybe he does, maybe he's up for that, but, but it seems strange unless they just thought Wilson is, is just ready to go. You know, we've kind of peaked, we've done our bit. Um, and we just have to do this rebuild sooner than later. Maybe that's the motivation. I mean, for the Broncos, this seems like an incredible opportunity. Yeah. We've been saying for two years, this is a this team is a quarterback away from really being a contender. And now they've got that quarterback. They've got still great young wide receivers, great rookie running back that emerged this year. So on, on offense, just seems like a real opportunity for them to take a huge step forward. And losing Fant will make a little bit of a difference, but overall they've, they've kept their playmakers and on top of that, to have the great defense that they've had, you know, for the last several years, uh, this, I think, I think, I think they're the real winners here, at least in the short term. And oftentimes with trades who wins the short term wins the trade uh, because yeah. maybe those first round picks paying out, but that's, that's a lot of time down the road. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Brady going to Tampa Bay, they won the Super Bowl. Right. And then this, this past year, Stafford goes to LA, then win the Super Bowl. And yeah, I think that also Russell Wilson too, will, will draw some other players there who may play on uh, contracts that are, um, you know, half of what they should be just to, to be on his team. 
I feel sorry for my relatives in the Northwest because they're just big, you know, Russ Wilson fans. And, you know, he's, he's got great grit and, you know, just a really great player. And, and uh, I think that's going to be a, a hard thing to, you know, swallow in, in the Northwest and, and the weather isn't even good there. So, uh, you know, that's, that's well, rough. And to trade with the Broncos, you know, when, when we lived there in the mid eighties, of course the Seahawks and the Broncos were bitter rivals. They were in the same division at that point with right. the chargers and the Raiders. So you just could not have imagined this trade, you know, 35 years ago. Now, of course the, they've realigned the divisions and, and Seattle's in the NFC now, but, but I just, you know, my, my 12 year old self was just revolted at the idea of of the Seahawks sending their, their star quarterback to the Denver Broncos Bronco buster t-shirts were all the rage when I was in sixth and seventh grade. It's hard to imagine that we've come full circle on that. Well, it just makes it that much more difficult for the Patriots too. I mean, like we needed another great quarterback in the AFC to to try to overcome. So that's... AFC is stacked. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, what's your final grade then on the uh, Broncos and Seahawks? There, I'd give the Broncos an A, and um, I'd give the Seahawks, you know, a, a D D plus C minus. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I think for the Broncos, if you couldn't get Aaron Rodgers, this is the next best thing. So I'd say that's that's an A, and and Seahawks. I don't see how this doesn't lead to a serious decline. They were already seven and 10 last year. I think it's a four or five win team this year if, if they're lucky. And who knows how long it takes to dig out of that. Right? You, don't, you don't have to bounce back in the NFL, even though there's opportunity with the way that the draft works and all the rest. All right, one more thing we're going to do. So because free agency is about to start, of course, last year, the big story the big player in free agency was was your patriots dave eight total players signed in the first two days i remember us texting back and forth another one another one what's going on and a total of 137.5 million in guaranteed salaries and bonuses from those eight players so we've got the list in front of us here and now with a year's hindsight looking back over the last season how would you rate the Patriots' overall performance signing those players last last March. I'd give them a B, and and they wouldn't have known it at the time when they were signing these players. But I, I think they they did understand they were probably going to have to bring in a young quarterback, and they were going to have to build around that individual, uh, try to strengthen their defense, um, and try to give that uh, person uh, a couple outlets. You know, and here they signed two tight ends. Um, they they did get stronger on defense at least the beginning part of the season. So I, I think all of this, uh, to the degree that it made Mac Jones' season easier, uh, which I think it did, I'd, I'd give them a B. They did have a little bit of a resurgence up until that awful game against Buffalo, but uh, but I think they're on the right track. They're moving in the right direction, and um, you know, a couple of these players, you know, you never hit it, you know, 100% on these things, but a couple of these players could have a better second year with the team. Uh, but overall, they seem to fit into the uh, team first mentality of the Patriots and. We'll see this year. I think the the best judgment will probably be after this year. Did some of these players continue to to improve or or get better, or you know, were they true busts? Yeah, certainly the most important move of the offseason was not these signings. It was the drafting of Mac Jones, and that the, the future of the franchise in some ways hangs on that more than anything else. If you look at the the the, the group of eight, all of them played at least forty eight percent of the snaps. So there's no bust there. No one who got banished to the bench, nobody who just got hurt and, and didn't play or, or whatever. So that in that sense, it's, it's pretty good performance. I think there's not really other than Matt Juden, 
uh, anybody that broke out either. You know, there were, there were some kind of people that kind of slotted in where you thought they would others that maybe were a little worse than you hoped. Maybe Jonu Smith is in that category. Nelson Aguilar, uh, Hunter Henry was, was great around the goal line, you know, nine touchdowns uh, was terrific performance. there. great kind of safety blanket for, for Mac Jones. So I think overall, yeah, I'd probably give him a B minus. I think they have tied their hands a little bit coming into this off season. Don't have a lot of salary cap room in part because of last year. So they took a step forward, made it to 10 and seven. Can they take the next step forward? It'll be harder in some ways because of some of the money that's tied up in this group of players. So that's why I give it the B minus rather than a little higher grade. Cause I think they, they kind of, recognized there was an opportunity there with the cap going down. They had a lot of cap room. Most teams didn't. So they were able to make some moves that others couldn't afford to do. Um, but that puts some pressure on this year, I think, and that, and that created a context where they may not be able to make as many improvements through free agency and put more pressure on, on, on having another good draft this year like they did last year. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's show. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget you can contact us at democracy in America today at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you next week.